From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back to Terra Informa. My name is Charlotte Thomason. And I'm Amanda Rooney, and we're going to be your hosts for the next 30 minutes of environmental news. Today, <laughs> we're taking a page from one of our favorite podcasts, Radio Lab, and we're sharing a series of stories um, around one environmental topic. Inspired by the Radio Lab episode, Bad News Bears, Terra Informers were tasked with finding either breaking news or a story about the unseen environment. And so, what do we mean by the unseen environment? Well, each reporter interpreted things a little differently, so we'll get to hear a range of stories. So each story brings an element of the invisible or overlooked into the spotlight. We got the whole team into the studio to share their stories and comment on what the unseen environment means to them. Okay, everybody, let's get this meeting started. This is, come on down to the CJSR news office. So um, this week we have um, an assignment for you. And essentially what that assignment is, is um, I don't know if you all have listened to the Radio Lab episode, Breaking Bad News Bears, but in that episode they give uh, the uh, Radio Lab people like an assignment to either do um, a story that is breaking news or a story about bears. So um, we're going to do something similar. Um, so either give us some, you know, breaking news in the past few days, or you can give us something that is about uh, the topic, uh, the unseen environment. So, yeah, you got a week. Not even a week. You got, like, oh, four days. Cool. I have essays to write. <laughs> it's Come it's on, guys, fine. this sounds fun. I think, I think <laughs> really we can make this work. We got this. Okay. Thanks, for Dylan. You, <laughs> Tara Informa. Adjourned. <laughs> go, go, go. So we are back. Everybody's back with their stories to tell. That was a wild four days. Totally wild. I've been working on this story for so long. We are so proud of you, Sophia. And with that, you're going to start us off. So Sophia Osborne... Go ahead. What did you come up with? Yeah, so um, because I'm a keener, I, I decided to go with both, as a lot of them did in Radiolab, uh, loved the episode. So I, I decided to channel them and do both a breaking news story that is also about the unseen environment. Um, I thought that this was like a breaking news story because I've seen it like on my social media feed so much um, in the last few days. So I thought that it was like a recent story, but then it turns out when I actually looked it up, um, it was being reported on in the summer last year and everything. So it's not actually that new, but I feel like it's breaking for a lot of people. So yeah, you might have heard about this story. Um, it's about these two nematodes that were found in the Siberian permafrost, um, and they they were frozen. But then like the scientists warmed them up, and then they just started like moving around and eating and everything. Um, so I, I thought that this is like unseen because basically I just wanted to talk about ghosts, but ghosts like aren't proven scientifically yet. So I was like, how can I talk about ghosts? And then I remembered that headline that I'd seen. So yeah, I'm gonna talk about that. Um, 
Uh, basically, yeah, these Russian scientists, they recently published findings in a Russian biology journal. So it hasn't really been like backed up by um, more investigations into it. But they found that, yeah, these two nematodes, um, which are also called roundworms, they were pre- preserved in the Arctic permafrost for around 40,000 years. Um, yeah, and they've allegedly come back to life after being quote-unquote defrosted. Um, so this is really interesting because if this claim is true, that would make these nematodes the oldest living animal um, and totally overthrow the world record for the longest time an animal's survived cryogenic preservation. Uh, they're both female, which is cool. Feminism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Are these nematodes zombies since yeah. they died and came back to life? But did they die or were, were they just like... Were they just sleeping, like hibernating? Yeah. Yeah. So, so apparently, they like the nematodes. I guess when the when the lab collected the samples, um, they were initially stored uh, in a lab at minus four degrees Fahrenheit. But then they were defrosted in a petri dish with a culture that was meant to promote growth. And after a while, they started moving around and eating. Um, So then. I, I pulled a lot of this from like a Smithsonian magazine article. So the uh, apparently other scientists have responded to this finding and said that it should be like technically possible for this to happen if they were really preserved in the right way and frozen in the right way. But they were also kind of skeptical and were wondering whether maybe it was just that the ancient samples got contaminated by contemporary organisms. Um, There has been a case where nematodes have previously been revived after 39 years of dormancy, um, which is still really impressive, but like nothing compared to 40,000 years. And then uh, the tardigrad, um, like water bear thing, has been successfully revived after roughly 30 years um, in ice. The article went on to talk about how it could be a really interesting finding for studying evolution, because I mean... Probably nematodes have changed a lot in 40,000 years. Um, And it also connects to de-extinction, which I did a whole episode about if you want to go back and listen to that to find out more about de-extinction. But basically, if this is true, it could be big for de-extinction scientists. Who knows, like, whether we could find viable samples from, like, larger species like woolly mammoths and everything potentially preserved in the Siberian permafrost. What are they planning to do with these nematodes that are obviously you know, 40,000 years behind the rest of the uh, population. Hmm. I assume that they might allow other scientists to look at them and try to examine. I think they they were talking about how they're going to test the DNA to try to figure out whether they actually are 40,000 years old or whether they're contaminated or something like that. Okay. Uh, Cool. So up next, we have Olivia Olivia. de Um, so, okay, I, I didn't do breaking news. This story is, like, from, like, 2017, I'm pretty sure. Um, but it is prehistoric. Um, so we're going to be talking about old stuff again. Um, and I chose this story because I was in class, and we were not listening. We were talking about other stuff. And my classmate was like, whoa, have you heard about paleo burrows? And I was like, no, I have not heard about paleo burrows. What is that? So, okay, so it turns out that these things are... Uh, trace fossils. Um, so trace fossils are anything that's like, it could be like a, an imprint of a foot uh, or like an imprint of the animal itself. Um, it could be like fe- like fossilized feces. Uh, it could be like old nest remains. 
A leaf? Uh, and apparently burrows. What? Like a leaf? Yeah, yeah. Like, like if, okay. if, if there was like a leaf imprinted in the sand and it fossilized, but not the leaf part. That yeah. part decomposes. Right. That would be considered like a trace fossil. Um, so it, it's basically evidence that this organis- organism existed, but it's not the organism itself. So... Basically, something these paleo burrows haven't really been discussed in scientific literature until early 2000s. Um, and as far as I could tell, it didn't even seem like they knew they existed. Um, but basically what happened is uh, a few years before 2010, this Brazilian geologist named uh, Henrik Frank found this, this burrow. And he, he was this geologist studying um, kind of south, southeastern Brazil. And he noticed that this particular cave he'd found wasn't the same as the caves around it. It wasn't smooth. It wasn't round. Um, and just the way that the hydrology, like the water uh, formed in the region, it, it wasn't making caves like this. So he goes in and as he's crawling through this little cave, he turns on his back and he sees all these claw marks in the ceiling. <laughs> and he's like, hmm, OK, so. I'm starting to think maybe this isn't a natural burrow. So uh, yeah, so it turns out that um, basically these these areas are mostly like uh, weathered granitic and basaltic rocks and sandstones. Um, and uh, yeah, that's just sort of the nature of this area. And and so what they think is that these these burrows were made by giant land sloths from the Ice Age. Um, and so they're prehistoric. These things were huge. These <laughs> giant land sloths were about three meters and 2,200 pounds. And they went extinct about 10,000 years ago, although um, some records say that they hung around in different parts uh, until like 4,000, maybe even 4,000 years ago, maybe even a little more recent than that. Um, and they could be found throughout uh, Latin America, Central America, some islands in North America. And so really widespread, absolutely gigantic. So these things... They say could be up to the size of elephants, um, but they ranged in size quite a bit. They were re- related to things like giant armadillos, um, giant anteaters, all this kind of cool stuff. Uh, the tunnels can get up to like 10 meters long with two meters in height and four meters in width. So they weren't like perfectly circular by any means, um, but they vary quite a bit. Um, some of them got so outrageously long, um, they would like branch out and they found some that were a combined length of 600 meters. So they don't think that just one animal did this. It would have been generations that would create these giant complex systems. And the problem is a lot of the tunnels have been filled up by sediments, um, but they found about 1,500 of them now. Um, and that was the last report done in um, 2016. Um, and so they found just like an outrageous number of them and um, mostly, in, mostly in Brazil. So they're not sure if maybe we're just not looking in North America and we haven't found any or... You know, people aren't typically going into a cave and thinking, oh, a giant elephant-sized sloth made this. So I think, you know, they're thinking, you know, there might be more in North America, but they haven't found any yet. So, Or maybe there's something about the soil that's not preserving them or weren't good for the sloths. Right. Who knows? Yeah. How? Okay, wait, sorry. So what explains so this guy's going through the burrow? He's, like, crawling through it. And then he, so you said he, like, flips around on his back and he sees claw marks, like, on the ceiling. Yeah. So wait, sorry, why are there claw marks on the ceiling? So I think um, what was happening there was probably claw marks throughout the whole thing. It just happens that on the ceiling, because a- other animals are probably using these burrows. So they probably would wear down the bottom and that sort of thing. So that's, mm-hmm. uh, that's my personal uh, commentary on that. I don't, I didn't read any papers that said that just that a, makes a little asterisk but I, that's what i would think would be happening um apparently another potential candidate for who made these um because some of them are a little smaller are giant armadillos so those may have also made them or have been using them 
Um, oh, and uh, they think also like a thousand years ago, like indigenous people may have been using them as well because they found uh, lots mm-hmm. of like ceramics and and like anthropological evidence of humans living in them. So, which makes sense because they were huge. And the other cool thing about it is they have no idea why they would use them because they sort of compared the size of these burrows to how big they know the land sloths were. And then they compared them to current animals that burrow. And these burrows were way bigger than they needed to be to hide from predators or to um, be hiding from like bad weather. Um, I'm not super sure why, um, but yeah. So apparently scientifically they're like, we don't know why they were so big, Um, but I guess they were just chilling in these burrows for some mysterious reason. Yeah, that's crazy. But the the burrows are still there, but the sloths are unseen. Yes, this is true. <laughs> they are gone. They are very gone. I don't know. Very if you dead. see one, please report it. Because that would be some. That would be pretty would cool. Be Just <laughs> public service a f- announcement. A feat if of science. If you see a giant land sloth, don't let it go unseen. <laughs> don't, <know. laughs> don't let it go unseen. <laughs> don't let it go. I love that. Well, unseen. thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks so much, Olivia. That's yeah. such a cool story. <laughs> yeah, that's an awesome story. What the heck? Cool. So our next unseen environment or breaking news story is coming from Dylan Hall. Has anybody here heard of Hamber Provincial Park in British Columbia? I haven't. No. How about the Big Bend Highway? Nope. No. Okay, so this isn't a breaking news headline. This is more of an old news story. But it's definitely about an unseen environment. And we're going to go and take a bit of a drive into the past along the Big Bend Highway. Um, Many of you probably know of the Trans-Canada Highway today that goes from Golden to Revelstoke through the Rogers Pass, but that road didn't actually exist until 1961. From 1935 to 1961, for 26 years, the Big Bend Highway was the only road between the northern central interior of BC and Alberta. It was over 200 miles, and it followed the Columbia River northwards from Golden, around the Cascade Mountains, and back down south towards Revelstoke. There was a really old-growth section of the forest, of Cedar Hemlock Forest, next to what was called Kinbasket Lake, that the province debated turning to a park for quite a while. And then in 1941, the much larger area of Hamber Park was created by then-Premier Duff Petulo, primarily as a ploy to get the federal government to take it on as a national park and to thus take on the road construction and maintenance costs of the Big Bend Highway. To give you a sense of Hamber's physical size, it was nearly 2.4 million acres or 9,700 square kilometers. It was the biggest park in BC at the time and, and since there's no bigger park in BC. It stretched from just north of Golden. It was a connector between Yoho and Glacier National Park. It went up the entire west edge of Banff and Jasper National Park, all the way to Mount Robson Provincial Park in the north. It was a massive area, and very few people knew about it, and very few people know about it today. The highway was advertised to the public, much as the rest of the highways at the time that went through provincial or national parks. It's really beautiful, it's really scenic, lots of nature. Um, But the problem was that it wasn't like most of the highways that ran through a lot of the national parks. Um, It was a seven, eight hour drive on a 200 mile gravel highway through old growth dense cedar hemlock forest. The plants and the trees around the highway would turn really brown from the mud. It was 
also quite boring for a lot of people driving <laughs> on it. It was a long drive. And promotional material in the early 1940s often neglected to mention that no food, gas, or lodging was available <laughs> along that 200-mile road between Rumblestoke and Glacier. So people were really upset after a while. They got... It, it got a reputation by word of mouth as a super boring and even worse dangerous highway. There were two Winnipeg web women who drowned. They hit a rock. They went into the Columbia River. There was a whole family that went into the Columbia River. A lot of times people's cars, if they broke down, they were so far from any service, they would just get picked up and hitchhiked back to town and leave their cars on the side of the highway. So while you were driving along this highway, there'd be abandoned cars on the side. And Anyway, people really weren't a fan. So when in... 1961, the BC government and the federal government opened the Rogers Pass as the new Trans-Canada from Golden to Revelstoke. Nobody was really that upset to hear that the Big Bend Highway was going to be flooded by the soon-to-be-created Micah Dam north of Revelstoke. Hamber in 1961, the same time that the road through from Glacier to Revelstoke was created, was deleted and it was thrown open to logging. The entire reservoir area of, of the Kinbasket Reservoir that was going to be flooded from the Micah Dam was clear cut from Micah Dam north up the Canoe River, south down the Columbia River, and there were 2.4 million acres of the then Hamber Park was turned, almost all of it was turned into the Kinbasket Sustained Yield Area. And it meant that in that year, um, a third of all of the parks area in British Columbia was deleted. They were a little worried about what the public would think about that. So they created Bowron Provincial Park, which was a tenth of the size, but a whole lot prettier. So people weren't that upset and nobody <laughs> really noticed because BC had never really told people they were driving through the biggest park at the time. All of this happened right next to the extremely popular Banff and Jasper National Parks and in many ways it was all forgotten and not talked about and rather ironically Hamber had been precisely the kind of park that a growing number of North American environmentalists were beginning to extol as wilderness areas during the 1960s. It was free from the cars, the crowds and the concessions found in such popular parks as Banff and Jasper. Hamber was one park that reflected a much greater trend about invisible environments in, in BC. So in post-World War II parks policy, um, although the number of provincial parks increased by almost 200 between 1949 and 1965, the total area of BC parks actually decreased by nearly 2.7 million acres. And as hundreds of small roadside picnic sites, campgrounds, boat launches, and other recreation-oriented spots were being added to the system, huge portions of older, larger parks were being deleted with the stroke of a pen, usually to facilitate enormous clear-cut logging operations prior to the construction of a dam that would flat out, flood out vast areas of the country. Beautiful British Columbia was stamped on all provincial license plates after 1964, and this politics of beauty mandated a government concerned about its popular legitimacy, I suppose, to provide naturalistic buffer strips along the roadside in the, in the sense of all those new parks that were created so that still today nature from the interior roads has been curated and cultivated to showcase beautiful views while evidence of the state's even greater concern to maintain 
capitalist accumulation in the shape of clear-cut logging and other resource extraction activities has remained largely out of sight of those of us driving those roads. Ooh, (laughs) a lesson in capitalism. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. And a quick um, fact check, I guess. Uh, Banff National Park is Mm -hmm. 6,600 square kilometers. So this park that got deleted in BC was actually over 3,000 square kilometers larger than Banff. Completely, (laughs) aside from a few small provincial parks, completely erased to logging and industry. And it's something like I never think about that area now. I've always been curious, like what's north of Golden? What's north of Ripplestoke? But I've never really, I don't know, has anybody really thought about that area when they're like moving through that part of the world? I'm very much relegated to like the parks, I feel like, which is maybe not, I don't know why I do it, but I do. <laughs> I yeah, like I mean, it's, it's easier. Yeah. That's where the Every, roads cause are. That's, yeah, and like yeah. there's there's stuff there. Like people are like, hey, you should check out this thing. And it's usually in a park. Mm-hmm. People aren't usually like, hey, you want to check out this like whole area that's been dammed and is like. Want to go learn a really depressing part of British Columbia history? Right. <laughs> And I guess, too, like the BC, BC Hydro initially intended to turn it into a recreational area. But then the problem was that the reservoir fluctuates over 100 oh. feet up and down. And it le- has left this moonscape of like stumps <laughs> on the on the edges. And a lot of the wildlife in the area wasn't able to persist because the main habitat for wildlife was the valley bottoms. And when the reservoir was created, a lot of things couldn't move from one side to the other, so it created quite the the block for a lot of things. So it's yeah. not really the most pleasant place to go and, and canoe, I suppose, which is probably another reason a lot of people don't know about it. Cool. Sounds a bit like a that, graveyard. Um, yeah. What did you say? It sounds like a graveyard, <laughs> like with the yeah. stumps at the bottom. Speaking of ghosts, it's a graveyard. Of stumps. <laughs> <laughs> Back on track. Well, that's what I said. We ghosts, the unseen environment. Our last story. Carter, take it away. Oh well, sorry, man. I gotta tell you, I didn't actually finish my story about murmuration this week. Um, so if we want to do some quick stuff, uh, the reasons why I was busy is because I was hosting trivia last night. So I do know some facts about starlings that are in murmuration. So. Um, For anyone that doesn't know, a murmuration is kind of a large flock of, uh, normally starlings are kind of the charismatic bird that does them. Poster child. Yeah, the poster child of murmurations. Uh, And they're kind of large, complex movements that these birds do through the air. You'll find very cool videos of them. Uh, They're often considered, they're like a poster child also for complex systems, uh, partially because we don't fully understand them and we don't understand the way they work. Uh, there's been a lot of work on the physics side of things to understand them, but uh, kind of the mystery of how these starlings function is they're kind of spread out. It can be possibly like hundreds of feet. These murmurations can be very wide. They have hundreds of starlings, sometimes thousands of starlings involved in these large murmurations. And all of the all of the starlings in the line will dip down at the same time. So um, there's they said there's explanations for why like one starling would go downward and the starling after it would see and they could catch each other but that wouldn't make sense for a 300 foot long line of starlings and they're all dipping down at the same time so that's kind of where we the mystery comes in is we don't fully understand how these starlings are communicating and acting almost as if they are one organism which is pretty cool uh, an interesting thing about these starlings is that starlings uh, we do have them all over North America but they're actually not uh, native species in North America they're the European starling 
and they were actually, this is the trivia that I did last night, um, they're actually were released by Eugene Schieflein, and I'm probably saying that wrong, <laughs> but I don't even know if he was German, but he lived in New York, and uh, he was born in the early 1800s, lived till the early 1900s, and he actually released more than 40 bird species to North America by releasing them into Central Park. And uh, his inspiration for these bird species was he wanted every single bird from Shakespeare to be in North America. He thought that that was what needed to happen to have more beauty in North America. Um, so we went about this releasing all these birds, which we now see absolutely everywhere, which is wild. It was one like weird man. He wasn't even a professional ornithologist. He was just like a birder, like an amateur ornithologist that like really thought that we needed Shakespeare's birds. Um, an interesting thing too, house sparrows are also an invasive species mm -hmm. and house sparrows were also introduced by Eugene Shifflin. <laughs> we'll say it differently each time. <laughs> um, and house sparrows aren't in uh, aren't in Shakespeare. So <laughs> he just did that one for fun. <laughs> wait, so wait, 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 wait. What do, what do starlings look like? Uh, so starlings kind of look like, uh, I would say if you saw them from a distance, you would think they're called small black birds. They are actually iridescent up close. So um, they have like cool kind of, such as crows actually and ravens as well, they have iridescence in their feathers, but starlings have m like lots of iridescence, very different kind of range of colors. Um, they travel in very large flocks often quite annoying and they sometimes have spotting all over their bodies yeah oh and a small yellow beak which points at the front which is probably a way that you could tell them apart from things like crows and ravens okay do you enjoy watching murmurations uh do i enjoy yeah i do i think they're pretty they're a little bit too weird for me it kind of weirds me out but um i think something that i'm trying to understand more uh, is the complexity of the world and science and kind of accepting that things aren't easily put into boxes of equations and understanding. And that that is beautiful in itself. Yeah, sometimes yeah, things sure. are unseen. Yeah, sometimes <laughs> the environment is unseen and you just gotta not see it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks everybody for Yay. coming in. Woo. That's all the time that we have for this week. To hear more stories like the one we shared today, visit our website at terrainforma.ca, subscribe on iTunes, and follow us on Spotify. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, located in Edmonton, Alberta, which is part of Treaty 6, the historic territory of the Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other First Peoples who continue to live and gather here and who continue to influence the stories we make and our understanding of the land around us. If you have questions or comments, send us an email to terra at cjsr.com or tweet us at Terra Informa. A big thank you to our contributors this week, Sophia Osborne, Elizabeth Dowdell, Carter Gorzitza, Dylan Hall, and Olivia DeBorsier. We've been your hosts, Charlotte Thomason. And I'm Amanda Rooney. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you here next week on Terra Informa.
Hello, this is Dara and Forma. 